everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're here this week. I am honored to be able to sit down and chat with a good friend and talented colleague, Dr. Tanya Gamby. Um, She's worked with kids and families and specialized in the area of autism for, gosh, couple of decades now. So welcome, Dr. Gamby. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, help folks who are tuning in understand a little bit of your experience. Today, we're going to be talking about recognizing signs of autism and finding the right support. So tell us a little bit about your experience with that. So I I have, I've been working in this field for about 25 years and, um, was part of some of the early research um, in applied behavioral analysis out of the Lovas. Um, Dr. Lovas was one of the first pioneers in that area, and I was part of the replication centers, and his head of research was my advisor. So I spent in, and I was actually an um, assistant clinical director in Dr. Lovas's clinic at UCLA for a number of years. So I've been in this field for a while, and I think I have, you know, uh, uh, ABA is a fairly intensive intervention, which we'll talk about it, 
a little bit more in depth later, but I'm talking about 25 to 40 hours a week when kids are young of intervention. And so I think I've spent a lot of my career thinking, well, we're going to find a pill or a medicine or something that's faster or more efficient. And we haven't. So we're still using ABA primarily as, you know, one of the best practice treatments out there. Um, early intervention ABA. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's great that you're talking about that. And you're absolutely right. One of the things I know in uh, hanging out in spaces with parents is that the the this issue around ABA or applied behavioral analysis and working with kids comes up a ton. So we will we are definitely going to circle back to that. Love to start based on all of that background. Is if you're a parent or and if you're a clinician too, if you're listening into this and you're kind of working with families and and have some questions about what might be happening for a a kiddo in your office, for anyone here who's concerned about kid wellness, can you describe some of the the early symptoms and symptoms in general of an autism spectrum disorder? Some of the first, if you're really tuned into autism, because sometimes mild autism is harder to detect, but um, I would really when there's a difference in joint attention, you know, you, I think if you've been working in this field, I know Dr. Anderson, you're also good at this, is you can just see these kids who their joint attention is different than the kids around them. Their eye contact is different. They're not responding to social gestures and bids the same way. Some of the first things you see in, in child development and babies and infants is they're responding to their mom's faces very, very clearly. And it's that triangle of the eyes and the mouth. And we actually know that kids with autism, they're looking all over the place. They're not really directly looking at eyes and mouths. So it's one of the first things that we can see. And parents will say, oh, I noticed eye contact was bad, or they weren't as responsive, or they you know, were responsive to sounds that were unusual, not the typical sounds, seem to hear things far in the distance and not respond to their name. So if you're looking at kind of a qualitatively different social development, um, there's actually some new research saying even just seeing that we may want to start intervention early. And uh, so I look for some sort of qualitatively different Social uh, interaction, eye contact interaction from early. You can start to see this, you know, the, see the eye contact differences really early. Um, but by nine months, you're going to be seeing some social differences, particularly if you're trained. Um, and then at around 12 months, you're going to be seeing differences in language acquisition. Um, so slower language acquisition rates. So if you've got a difference in social interaction and a difference in language interaction, those are some of your earliest signs that you're going to notice. Later, you're going to start noticing more obsessive interests or repetitive behaviors. But all babies have repetitive behaviors and favorite toys. So that one's a little harder to differentiate when kids are really young. I think, and that's what comes up for me a lot in this area too, is that in in talking to parents over the years, like any one of these things, a language delay, some differences in social development, being really into princesses or Thomas the Train, like part of child development is getting really stuck on certain toys. So I have a, a lot of parents say to me like, gosh, how do you know when that's more than a normal interest in princesses or jewels or bugs or, you know, whatever it is that my kid's into. I mean, I think that's a couple of thoughts that I have, right? Is that I always welcome the roosters in my conversation. <laughs> I'm probably <chime> in too. <laughs> so, 
So I often say to parents that it isn't, I mean, that's why it's a good idea to reach out to thought partners who are experienced and assessors, because people who are trained in it can, can start to look for, um, you know, spokes of a bicycle wheel is kind of how I talk about it. That if there's something at the center of development that is leading to these challenges or differences in multiple areas, then that's a reason to look further. So it's not one issue in one place it's a variety yeah and you're looking at you know all of those so when you really make the diagnosis you need a difference in the social skills and the language development and the repetitive um behavior so you need you know more than one area so you're right you could see someone with just a language delay and they don't have autism or just an obsessive interest and they don't have autism it's when you see all three but some of those earliest signs and one of the reasons you know a lot of times you'll hear parents say well i'm gonna wait boys talk late you know, parents will have a gut feeling sometimes and mm-hmm. early intervention makes such a massive difference. And, you know, I really talk about early intervention as kind of early intensive tutoring. You know, mm-hmm. you could see that your child wasn't reading as fast as everybody else and we started to get them reading. There's really no stigma. A lot of, No parents have objections to doing that. I think parents are scared a little bit of the autism word and diagnosis sometimes and they hesitate about but early intervention, especially if you can get them before that language acquisition rate, like around age two, you know, I have kids that come into my clinic for six months and they're done and they're back in their schools and they no longer qualify for a diagnosis of autism. They probably have some of the strength still of kids with autism, but they've lost the deficits. Their language is caught up, their social skills. Because if you think about that early acquisition stage, that's when our language and our social skills are really developing and the brain is pruning and adding connections rapidly during that time. And we think the intervention helps shape some of that pruning. Um, so in my mind, and actually in some of the insurance companies' minds, leaning on the earlier side of intervention is um, so much, it's important at such a high degree that the insurance companies, some of them will let us give a provisional diagnosis for six months so we can start treatment while we try to get actual um Uh, a definite diagnosis. And, you know, this is an expensive treatment. So the reason they're doing that is they get such better outcomes if we start early. You know, if you think of other progressive um, issues, you know, waiting longer in a lot of things makes it harder to treat. And so same thing with autism. If you're concerned, you know, there's no harm in asking. Um, And there's a lot of good that can come. I think that's a great point. I would say also that I have a lot of parents who um, come to me Having worried for years, a family member mentioned it, they, they've wondered themselves, they've researched online, they're hoping it's not the word itself. If I have had to offer people that diagnosis, I will often say sometimes parents just sort of leave the room, their bodies, like they're gone, they're distracted, they're thinking 20 years down the road, an institution, like they, it's, it's human as a parent to worry but, but the word itself seems to sort of evoke such a strong stress response in parents that it, that it is important to reiterate that I always say it's better to, to rule it out, right? To make sure that you're finding people who do have experience. And this is important too. If you do think that, that it might, that your, your kid's developmental path might be being influenced by autism, it's important to find somebody who really knows how to see mild versions as well as moderate or severe versions of autism because talk a little bit about the arc of a more mild autism what does that look like over time 
So I'm going to really emphasize, I think, your point around really making sure you're finding a specialist. More severe autism is clearer to diagnose. You've got some really clear markers of atypical development. And so, you know, it's much less likely that people miss that. Once you get to moderate or mild, these are kids that are talking, they're interacting. A lot of times they're good at talking to adults, maybe not kids as much. Their eye contact might look slightly different. There might be a slight language delay. You really need a specialist to be able to, I, I know you and I have both seen so many kids who are missed and they don't come in until they're six or seven or sometimes 10 or 12 and their development looks you know, atypical. We can't do a whole lot of early intervention and shifting that trajectory after the age, you know, really ideally get them in before the age of four. After the age of six, it's no longer an early intervention period. And then you're really working with the strengths and weaknesses of this child and helping them bolster strengths. But some of that fundamental change you're going to get in social skills and language development, you really have to do when they're young, when the brain is still developing those capacities. You know, and, and some of the, just back to your point about people being scared, I think the neurodiversity movement and some of the advocacy from people with autism themselves um, has been really important in shifting some of the conversation around autism. Teenagers with autism, all, you know, fairly mild in school, but having difficulty with friends. Every single one of them said they would have loved to have had help being more social. That was really their main deficit. But, you know, one of them said, but if you cure autism in quotes, because nobody likes that word anymore, but if you cure autism, you're going to get rid of all your inventions and your cool things because it's the people on the spectrum who are your artists and your inventors. <laughs> and I think there's, you know, there's definitely some truths to that, that unlike some other disorders, autism has some pretty major strengths a lot of times. So you see this real uneven development, which is kind of interesting, fascinating strengths in some of these kids that I would love to have. Mm -hmm. And really what our early intervention does is it bolsters the weaknesses. So I we don't talk about curing autism anymore. We talk a lot about bolstering weaknesses, letting them be in school unassisted. Many of the kids after early intervention won't qualify for an autism diagnosis because they don't have enough of the weaknesses anymore. But they do have a lot of times these strengths, this unusual pattern seeking, this attention to details that's different and create some of the inventions and scientists and thinking outside the box that we see, um, you know, in a lot of our higher education areas. I think that's a super, and I was, and thank you for that. I was definitely going to highlight that piece. I think it, it comes up a lot in spaces that I'm in where parents are saying, you know, are you even talking about these things as symptoms? Like what if my child is neurodiverse and, and that is to be celebrated because diversity is to be celebrated and, and my kid just has a different way of doing things. So is there, should I be pursuing a treatment that will reinforce the idea that something is wrong with my kid, that, that it will make them feel broken or labeled or, or um, different in some way. So you mentioned a little bit about that, but what, what would, I mean, I like when you talk about uh, addressing some of the weaknesses, how, how does that weakness show up later? When these kids were saying, you know, hey, I, I wish I had had the chance to build these skills. What kinds of challenges are you seeing in older autistic folks who didn't have the opportunity for, and we'll talk about the kinds of early interventions that are helpful. So that didn't have the opportunity for intervention. What do you see? You know, there's such a range. Um, so I think that one of the difficulties with autism is this range of severity, right? So you have these pretty severely impacted individuals, moderately impacted to pretty mildly impacted. You know, I'm certain that, you know, many of us in our communities are interacting regularly with people of mild autism and are married and in our community and, you know, working. 
And then you go all the way to severe where they, you know, where the children have difficulty maybe living in homes or in assisted living situations later um, where daily living skills are really severely impacted. So um, in the more mild, because those are the people who are doing more of the self-advocacy and that they can talk about it more and, and share online and create forums and stuff. Um, I hear mixed. There's definitely pushback against any treatment for autism. Don't fix us. We're not broken is some of what you hear. Sometimes I wonder, you know, when I'm working with a child who's banging their head against the wall or I've had children chewing their own fingers off on the really severe side, you know, some of those symptoms are hard to ignore and keep someone safe. Um, I, I would say more often in my experience, I have seen, and I wouldn't want to speak for people with autism. I think, you know, you're seeing a lot more self-advocacy. That's probably the first place to go to. Yes. But in my experience, what I do hear people saying is, is that the social skills, not being able to make friends, having trouble in their work environments because they're not reading the social cues is hard. And to me, sometimes I'll explain it. Like if you went to China and you were working in China and you were an American and there's a cultural clash all the time. And if people didn't understand why, when you looked rude or you looked like you were missing the cues that you were supposed to pick up, you know, it's easy when you're American, it's clear that why there's a difference. In autism, a lot of times people don't know. And so they might think that someone's being rude or they're, you know, um, I had somebody referred to me who had a chip on their shoulder, they were said, and they were being kicked out of school. And I was like, that's not a chip on their shoulder, that's autism. They just didn't realize that they were. So uh, many of the kids will, and adults will say to me that that's their biggest deficit and their biggest uh, hardship later in life or mild. And they, you know, suicide rates are higher in people with autism. And I think, you know, some of it's because of that, that isolation, social rejection, so when we're targeting early intervention, the social piece in a good early intervention program is enormous. You're really trying to help them do joint attention, understand humor, understand some of these subtleties. Um, let me back you up. So joint attention, because you mentioned that earlier, that is not just eye contact. It is, and this is a key one that comes up in school. This is something that was really significant in the kids that I worked with who had mild autism that were not immediately identifiable as having challenges with it. But for, for parents listening, joint attention is to, sh to look where another person is looking, to share attention, to, to read the cue that there's a focal point you're supposed to be seeing as well, right? So it's like knowing where your attention is supposed to be shared with other people, and to, whether that's looking at the chalkboard, whether it's following, I mean, you... That, Correct me if I'm wrong. How would you break down exactly. joint attention? Okay. So that's the joint. And then I probably should also say there's another concept called theory of mind in autism, which is really, you know, that social intuition that neurotypical people develop without being coached. You know, it's really fascinating, I think, to work in this field is you realize how much of it neurotypically is developed very automatically without specific teaching or coaching. You know, I know when you're nodding right now, I can see you're nodding at me that you're agreeing with what I'm saying. If you started to look quizzical, I'd probably back up and kind of know like, uh oh, I said something rude or something that she's not understanding. In autism, understanding the body language, um, putting all the clues together to understand what someone else might be thinking um, can be really, really difficult. Um, I had a an adolescent, a really bright adolescent, doing really well in school, is now in a, doing really well uh, in his career, but had gotten kicked out of school for being offensive and telling Jewish jokes. And I'm Jewish and my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And I say to him, hey, you know, the jokes about Jews in the oven, how do you think they make Jews feel? How do you think they make me feel? And he looked at me totally blankly. And I said to him, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, totally blankly. 
And he ended up telling me, well, Frank DeLima makes jokes like this and other people. So, so what had happened was there was this lack of understanding of how what he was saying could impact a different person, a different group, a different. Um, so all these clues we put together to understand how someone else might think or feel have to be taught more directly in autism. They're not learned as intuitive. This was not a mean kid at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was you know, hurting people's feelings inadvertently by doing something he saw someone else do that was funny um, in that context, that time, that place. Understanding if your child seems out of sync, you know, if it seems like sometimes they're in their own bubble, which can be fine and probably is part of the strength, thinking their own thoughts, going their own. So there is some strengths involved in that and being your own person, not following the crowd, not trying to be cool all the time. You probably waste a lot of time trying to be cool. But if you're noticing they're in their own bubble and there's kind of obvious social cues they keep missing, that can sometimes be a really big sign that they're not comprehending them. They're not understanding how the other person is thinking or feeling. Yeah, I think that's great to be, to imagine that other people but, and both, right? To read the cues, what other people might be thinking or feeling, and also just to have the awareness that other people are having their entirely own emotional and thinking process mirrored on the other side of what's meeting them. Well, it was a fascinating, this kid's a teenager in, in typical school, and I say, how do you think that makes me feel? And his answer was, oh, you think different thoughts than I think? And I began to draw them for him. Yes, actually. Um, and that was fascinating, you know, and, and he was quiet. So, so, but told so much about why he wouldn't have understood what he was doing that was hurting other people. And once I told him, what's interesting about him is, you know, he's a really bright kid. He wanted to read all my social skills book immediately. It was like, aha, <laughs> there's, there's a, you know, guides to this. Because um, he knew something was going wrong, but he actually wasn't sure what it was until I began to explain it to him. So, right. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things that I've seen too, is that we talk broadly about kids who have mild versions of autism, not being able to read social cues. And yet as they age, they do read enough social cues to know that they're struggling socially. Right. I mean, they're for many kids. I think that's the, one of the hard spots is the, the, there are a subset of all kids with autism or not who, who are fine being alone and doing their own thing. And it doesn't impact them. They don't feel lonely. And then there's a subset of kids with autism or not, who, who know that they're missing and, start, and, and, it's, and it's lonely. I mean, they, they really want more connection, but recognize enough of the cues and the data that they're not reaching out to others. So I think, you know, parents will often, uh, this dilemma, and I, I would, if, it's, if it's time to talk a little about the ABA, because this is something that comes up a lot. Applied behavioral analysis, would you tell us what it is and why it's recommended. I know it's a whole big topic, but in a nutshell, what is it and why is it recommended? So initially, so Dr. Lobos back in the 70s, you know, he was a behavioralist and he was looking at um, kids with autism. And at that point, we really only saw the more severe kids. We really weren't capturing some of the milder kids. And, and we're actually not even sure this is all the same diagnosis. We call it that, but who knows? You know, we're still figuring out autism. But so we were seeing much more severely impacted kids or he was, I was younger at that point. <laughs> but, um, and what he start, said is, let's just treat all these, everything they do too much of, let's start to reduce it. And everything they do too little of, let's start to improve. And that's it. He spent 20 to 40 hours a week training them. And hey, if you can't talk, I'm going to get you to talk. If you can't look in my eyes, I'm going to get you to look in my eyes. If you're hitting your head too much, I'm going to get you to do less of it. You know, And it turned out that about 47% of those kids who got 20 to 40 hours, 40 hours at that point of early intervention 
you know, made massive IQ increases, massive, and were unassisted in school, lost their diagnosis, and had been pretty profoundly um, impacted. So ABA has continued to be that. We keep thinking it's going to get, you know, faster, more efficient. It's about 20 to 40 hours a week um, of early intervention. Ideally, you know, you can do as early as two, 18 months. Um, sometimes there's some new stuff coming out for earlier kids on just joint attention. But ABA is taking these kids around two to four, five, six, um, but ideally before four, closer to two, and teaching them, you know, these kids have 20 programs that uh, many of the programs are run kind of like a preschool. You're in one-on-one -on -one treatment um, and you're learning every skill you would do, social skills, language skills, self-help skills, play skills. Mm. It gets a bad rap sometimes, um, especially as the internet proliferates with people talking about different stuff. Um, and I think part of that is it's a pretty specialized treatment. And I think you actually have a lot of bad ABA providers out there. People who are saying they are trained and they're not. People are doing watered down ABA. I'll go into classrooms and people are doing the same program for, you know, weeks on end and the kids frustrated and they're frustrated. In our clinic and in the clinics that are run well, when you want it being done well, it's fun. Um, and part of that is on purpose. We want these kids to want to be social. I want them to seek me out. I want them to want to play with me. I want them to look at my face. So to do that, I have to be pretty fun and our staff has to be pretty fun. We we're so much fun that I would argue that when COVID happened and we had to shut down, parents were begging us to let the kids come back into the clinic. Kids were asking to come back to school. They call it school, um, our clinic. And uh, so, you know, parents will say, we don't want our kids to graduate from you. And we're like, it's a good thing. It means they don't need us anymore. And then there's bad programs and you and I have seen lots of those. And I think that's where some of the bad rap comes from. Sometimes they'll say, you know, it's like dog training because behavioral interventions works for a lot of different things. You know, it's, it's, you do a behavior and I either reinforce or don't reinforce that behavior in, in a much more complex setting right. in ABA for humans, but a very simple version of that can be used in animal training and it can be used in other disorders. We use it in ADHD for certain things. We use it in oppositional defiant disorder. So I think it gets a bad rap because people don't understand it and they've never seen it done well. Yeah. And I think that what, what comes to mind when I hear parents saying is that a couple of the threads that we've touched upon that we're, we're going to end up squashing what is naturally who children are and that it is repetitive, punitive and token based. So if you do the right thing, you get a cookie. Like this is the parents speak and things that I see written about and like, you know, recently, you know, folks in parenting groups online, what can I do? You know, my child has autism, just been diagnosed. Tell me anything I can do except ABA. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, oh gosh, because I do think the point that you make, and I want to reiterate having come and seen programs that you developed earlier and watching it's for parents to understand, you know, there's, there are what we know about child development is that, and this is kind of how, correct me if I'm wrong. I sort of think of child development worldwide as kind of like a set of stairs. You sort of go up in leaps and you're making progress. And even all around the world, the different cultures, different exposures to things, there's a pretty, you know, language develops in similar patterns, motor skills, social skills. And, and, when there are differences in development, the idea is that these early interventions target the area. So you'll have programs, you, you know how these skills are meant to develop. What comes next in language development or play, I think, is a great thing to talk about, right? We go from, you know, repetitive play to parallel play to interactive play. And, and, and so 
if you take a, pay, a play plan for a kid who comes in, it will meet the kid where they're at and then work to, re, to teach them new skills, to engage with them, to play with them and help those skills be practiced. And then they're rewarded when the kid plays so that they want to do more and more. And all that is also contributing to flexibility and bridges being built in the brain. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Like, is that how you would describe what it is? <laughs> and maybe a simple way of saying it is, you know, when I first started this treatment, I, I it's a random story about why I ended up in this clinic, but I knew nothing about autism. And um, I remember looking at it initially and being like, well, why don't you take them outside and just teach them out trees? You know, much more of the typical ways that parents would teach their children and not this more formal way. Well, a couple of things. These children are growing up for the most part in enriched homes with families that are doing everything right. And they're not learning from the typical environment, some of those connections. And a little bit, the social part, particularly as there's more research on loneliness, you know, there's some pretty compelling research coming out now on loneliness being one of the most damaging things to us, both psychologically and physically and physical health. There's some really interesting research that's coming out more recently that's making me think about, you know, how we talk about connection. So to me, a little bit, it would be like putting the kid, you know, it's my example of going to China and trying to work there and not teaching the Mandarin, you know, like, hey, good luck. Like, if you don't speak the language that everybody around you speaks, it's much harder. If you don't understand the cues that everybody's doing. So I would never want to, these kids, like I said, have phenomenal strengths. You know, the child who can catalog things and arrange things and knows how to do stuff. I might redirect them for some of the day because I need some of that time to do other things. But what I want to squash an incredible strength or this cuteness of this child, absolutely not. That's That wouldn't be our goal. But our goal would be, could you read when someone's being mean to you? And be able to respond to that, you know, versus like not under, you know, these kids are somewhat susceptible to being exploited and taken advantage of because they may not read when someone's conning them. So can I teach them the subtle cues of someone serious versus they're sarcastic versus they're lying? You know, we're doing both. We're honoring the individual characteristics of this child and then helping them that, you know, if, if one in 54 children, I think is what the current number is that have autism, that means 54 people around them at any one time. One person around them probably has autism, but most of the people don't. And if they're going to be in this larger neurotypical cultural milieu, could we give them some skills to make that easier? Um, in school, you know, we, we work on academic stuff too. Well, right. The school, that's one of the things that I was going to say as well is academically, you can absolutely have kids haven't been diagnosed with autism have tremendous strengths like hyper strengths photographic memories and like reading eight years above their grade level <laughs> and like and maps and, I, and knowing facts that's another sign to look yeah. for i'm glad you brought that up yeah i was yes. parents both come in and talk about these extraordinary strengths that their kids have if they have extraordinary strengths and some unusual weaknesses that's sometimes we don't typically see that outside of autism that's a fairly big red flag and that's awesome they have strengths it's not to not celebrate the strengths it just means that you may be that my guess would be that their social skills are going to look not as well advanced. If I hear that split, then my thought would be, hmm, how are they playing? How's that joint attention? How's that theory of mind? You may want to bolster that to support them in a more even development course. And then they get both, right? You don't want to to dissuade a kid from from the I remember a six distinctly remember a six-year-old who in the waiting room when I was chatting with parents drew a like down to the tiniest detail picture of the human body with every organ, every, you know, like named and whatever and, and could name and, and wanted to list off 
storms that had happened for the last, like the ability to, to collect and learn information about a specialized area of interest just blew. I mean, like I was fascinated and teaching me, I mean, over and over again, like what? I didn't know that. I mean, in six and seven and eight year old kids sometimes. And yes, if that, that sort of brain's ability to compute facts can also accidentally get in the way of connecting and being flexible in different situations. Actually, some new research coming out that that the part of your brain that develops empathy and joint attention and theory of mind, uh, maybe when you have more of that skill, you tend to have less of the patterning kind of logical sequencing that we see in autism. When you have more of the patterning logical sequencing, it may come at the expense of this empathy part of the brain. So it seems like they actually, and that some people, you know, most neurotypicals might be more in the middle. They have kind of both. Um, you know, I would say that you and I with our like, you know, or spatial skills and poor mechanical skills and our good empathy skills, which makes us therapists, right? You can see that we're a little bit underdeveloped. Yes. In autism, right? You see more development in that area and less development in the um, social skills area. Well, it turns out when we work on the social skills, we can bolster those. I don't know that you and I could have benefited from early intervention. It hasn't been shown yet. I wish I could have because it's really a deficit for me and, and for you, I know. Um, <laughs> It turns out for kids with autism, not all of them. That is one caveat to make. You know, you're going to see significant gains. 33, 47% will make, you know, massive gains. They're going faster than you can teach them. And then we'll have a subset that, that learn at a slower pace, and we don't know why. Again, is this a different subset of autism? Is it a different disorder? And we're calling it all autism. We just don't know enough yet. It's the best we can do and it's the best we can offer, but it will vary the responsiveness that we see to kids to treatment. Yeah. I think one of the other words that comes up for me for that parents are sort of, and again, you're looking at spokes of a wheel. You're not looking at any one of these things driving you to, to worry unnecessarily. But the, the two last thoughts I have are one, flexibility. Like I remember hearing like just really struggling with changes in the routine, anything's different. There's an immediate sort of gripping or locking or freezing or tantruming. It can be simple as driving home a certain route from somewhere that you know, your, your child is really unable to handle like they associate things very quickly, link things together quickly in their head. And if something changes in that linking or in the routine or daily path, then that can be really jarring, I would say, for kids that I've seen struggle with that. And that's another early sign. You can see rigidities, you know, two-year-olds are known for their inflexibility and some of their rigidities. So some of it's hard to differentiate from what's being a toddler, but unusual rigidities, like a child that knows the way home at age two from different areas is mapping the world in a way that most two-year-olds aren't able to do. So there's two parts of that that would stand out to me as, whoa, they mapping their way home. That's a strength. And that's might be, that might be a sign of a different brain development pattern. Um, and then also this idea that it's so rigid and overwhelming. And I didn't talk much about it. early intervention does a lot on those behaviors that can be really destructive, you know, back to this idea of banging their heads. You know, you can now see, you know, much more self-injurious behavior, aggressive behavior to other people, um, tantrums, crying. And, you know, and, and part of it's this mismatch between their brain, not, you know, it's not working in this neurotypical world and there's frustrating things and there's lights and demands and things that, you know, especially in the more moderate to severe autism, but even in mild, 
you know, that'll be a sign I'll see is, wow, this kid's speaking and they're gifted in these areas. And yet if we do one little thing, like we leave five minutes early or we don't stop here first, they, you know, have this huge tantrum and, um, you know, that can be another sign. Um, Talk a little bit about sensory stuff, because that was something in the old way that we used to. It wasn't even in the diagnostic criteria before was that there are sensory irregularities or sensory sensitivities in kids. Um, But what do you what do you see in terms of sensory stuff? There's normally some sort of sensory irregularity in the kids, maybe some for some kids it's really really prominent and it's either an over or under sensitivity it's actually can be both you know a lot of times you'll hear they're really have a high pain tolerance um or but that like a, t- a tag might really bother them or seams on their socks and it's really interesting there's certain ones you hear much more often than other ones certain smells seams on socks tags um seams in clothing soft clothing you know, things touching their head, vacuum cleaners will be a big one, the sound of a vacuum cleaner, the sound of flushing toilets, you know, the amount of kids in my clinic with the parents know which toilets flush loudly and avoid them until we work with kids and say, okay, we can get them to kind of be able to go into Walmart, which is one that's a big, you know, the airport bathroom, getting their hair cut. So it's an over or under sensitivity. Um, in early intervention, we will slowly and gradually kind of get them used to some of these things. And that might be another place that sometimes maybe I think done badly you know you're very very slowly doing this with lots of play like hey it's okay buddy we can go into the bathroom we make it expected so they can hear it you know when you go into saying panic because it's loud and it scares you when you run away you maintain that fear and so one of the things we do is we talk about it we read about it we're going to walk into the bathroom we're just going to touch the toilet and then we're going to run back out again and then we're going to stay there for three seconds and then you're going to flush it then we're going to throw something fun down the toilet so that's a good program around aba is we don't make it scary we don't overwhelm them we don't i'm a mom I don't want to walk in and see kids crying and sad. You know, you're really trying. But if you're a child that can't ever go into an airport bathroom, that's going to limit travel and a lot of your life. So it's a balancing act, I think. And and that is one thing ABA addresses a lot um, is working on some of those uh, sensory challenges that the kids have. I could sit and talk for hours about it. But as we think about this sort of morsel for parents, what's the path to a good ABA program or a clinic? It must start with a, like, What's the path to, to ruling in or out a diagnosis and then knowing if a clinic is doing ABA in a way that will serve their kids well? Like, what would you suggest to parents who are trying to get a diagnosis or wondering if they could rule out a diagnosis or rule it in? And then, and then how, do you, what, how can you learn about clinics or programs? Pediatricians are your first normal stop. Going to a pediatrician, most of them... Um, are doing screenings, developmental screenings, and then they're referring kids out for further evaluation. I would absolutely ask how many evaluations that person's done in autism, because you may get someone who just is looking, you know, is doing a broad evaluation for a developmental um, delay, but they don't specialize in autism, and they will almost always miss the milder kids or not use the gold standard instrument. So I'd look for someone who specializes in it. There tends to be autism societies in every state. You can reach out to them. They tend to be good resources for um, programs in that state. Um, it, you know, there's a, there are BCBAs as a new um, licensure certificate track that says that people are trained in this type of training. 
In my experience, it also matters if you're looking for early intervention that they've had early intervention training. I've seen lots of BCBAs who don't do early intervention well at all. You know, like anything, you're looking for someone qualified with enough experience who's good at it. There is a um, Association for Science and Autism Treatment Online.com is a website, ASATonline.com. They tend to do a pretty good job. There's a lot of alternative treatments out there that may one day have promise, but right now don't have evidence for them. Um, some of them are dangerous, actually. So what I like about this website is that it really is just showing us what do we have evidence for now? And clearly science changes. So evidence changes. You know, the second they come out and say ABA is not the best practice anymore, I will change what I'm doing because I follow science. And I think that's important. So they do do a list of best practice interventions. Right now, most the most promising interventions are ABA which can be like pivotal response training is a type of ABA. The early start Denver model is a type of ABA. Um, you know, the UCLA low boss model is another one. So you can see these different models and you can look further into it. Um, we mostly have research on early intervention. There's less research on later, and it's probably because we get a bigger bang for our buck in the early intervention and we don't get as much. There's some on social skills groups and, you know, augmentative communication, but those aren't as comprehensive programs for the most part. And the last thing, there is a first 100-day toolkit. I can't remember who puts it out, but if you Google that for autism, and it really walks parents through what to do in that first 100 days post-diagnosis, because it can be pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to say a lot of what I've seen, which what I would invite parents, I think one of the key messages is that a lot of parents hoped their way through the developmental window. They hoped that things would catch up. A pediatrician, and I'm so grateful for pediatricians everywhere, and sometimes miss the mild ones if they're not trained to look because they see them only in their office. They're, they don't see them in social situations on playgrounds and play dates and things like that. And so it's a hats off to all pediatricians. And if your mom or dad, parent of any kind, gut is going off and, and, you, and you're hoping that you're the doctor and they do, and then you want to relax, but there's something still telling you, I would really really encourage parents, many of the other childhood things, ADHD, anxiety, depression, don't have the same kind of window that autism has. It's actually one, we don't have an effective treatment like this for almost anything else. The efficacy of this treatment when it works is phenomenal. And I don't think people realize it. And what you just said, miss that developmental window. Once you're four or five, six, that language acquisition period's closing. The social skills are pretty well developed. We can't do very much with brain changes at that point. And so this is sort of like massive tutoring with actual brain changes that we're seeing for kids that we can only do when they're young enough for their brain to change that way. Get to somebody who specializes in it, asks how often they've done it, asks if they're, ask if they're experienced differentiating mild versions, like is this something they do? And then if, if you're debating that, that the early intervention around this stuff is so critical. Um, and, and really, as you said, it, the brain is plastic, it changes. And I want people to leave with this sense as well, that this is, it is a whole child approach. We're clinicians, so we talk about symptoms and we talk about efficacy, but, but also as humans and parents, you know, really want folks to understand if the clinic is, 
is running well and doing well, then sure, your kid may have hard days. They may be tired. This is something else I used to say to parents. If your parent, if your kid is coming it's home, right? frustrated, it's preschool. preschool sometimes, <laughs> right? Um, they will be exhausted. Things will be hard. It will seem more structured than what you expect kids might get. But that, but stay in communication with providers. There's so much research that says that this is a really wonderful intersection of seeing your whole child balancing out what they need for development and doing it with a particular eye and ear and training toward what is going to move along skills in the areas that are less developed for your child so that they're able to show up in the learning environments they need to be in, make friendships, regulate emotions, and 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 still get at those great spike skills and strengths they have, but not be held back by by really frustrating, uneven um, development and be able to, to access people, you know, be fully available in relationships, learn to their greatest capability, all that stuff is true. Um, and that's what the hope is of these programs, right? I'm absolutely, I think that's a really beautiful way to, to phrase it. And yeah, and yeah, I love that as a summary. Great. <laughs> then I would love to have you back. I would love to have you back another time to talk about, and I know in terms of the efficacy piece, the data is a lot on the earlier intervention, but I would love to do a part two on older kids. Okay, so you're a parent and you had a mild, a child who has mild to moderate for a variety of reasons. Maybe the earlier intervention didn't happen, wasn't available where you lived in the world formerly, like whatever. What? Let's let's come back together and and think about where are the resources and how what kinds of skills to shape in older kids. But this, I think, snapshot of the folks who who have a chance to walk into this window and get the support they need. Um, thank you for being willing to come and and thank you. chat. <laughs> no, it's thank a- you for being part of this community. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. thanks, Dr. Gary. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlaraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter. Keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation Uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.